Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey there, and welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. This week, I'm joined by Martin Phillip, originally of Northwest Arkansas and now a resident of the great state of Vermont. Martin is a really special guy. He's an author. He's a world-renowned baker. You know, and I'd say he's a philosopher. I've been talking to Martin... Uh, you know, over the internet waves and on the phone for a couple years now. And I was finally able to meet him in person when I invited him, invited him rather over to uh, Arkansas to join me for the revival. This really cool weekend I do every year at the lodge where I just invite folks that I want to hang out with and spend time with to hunt and cook and talk with. And I got to do that in long form with Martin throughout the weekend and then at the very tail end of it everyone else had left it was just me and Martin still there and we had a really great conversation I think this conversation is really illustrative of who Martin is the way he looks at the world he's a guy that I just I'm so glad he exists Uh, he has like a really calming presence I feel like when he's around he's so incredibly thoughtful and really even though we talk a lot about hunting in this podcast, it's, it's really a podcast that's about or intended to be an examination of craft. And Martin, to me, is the epitome of a craftsperson, uh, the way he looks at the world, the way he works with his hands. And I'm so glad to get to introduce you to him. There's something a little bit different about this episode as well. After the end of this podcast, I asked Martin to read an essay Uh, Because I think his voice is so important. I really love his writing style. And he was polite enough to indulge me in that request. And so at the end of the podcast, I invite you to keep listening for another few minutes and have a really special experience, I think, where you get to hear the words in the author's voice. I think it's uh, so important. And it's something that we don't get to hear very much anymore. Because Martin is... A storyteller and I invite you to read his books I invite you to read his essays and I invite you to listen to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast with my friend Martin Phillip welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast I'm at the tail end of the revival for this season, and I'm joined by the first person I invited to it, Martin Phillip, the man with two first names, uh, originally from Northwest Arkansas and now a resident of Vermont. Uh, if I recall correctly, your title now is bread ambassador for yeah. King Arthur Flower, who's you know pretty widely known as like the the premier flower purveyor and provider for uh, many parts of the country. 
But Martin, welcome very much, and thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, buddy. man. What an honor to be here. And, and really, like, what I would say is, you know, as someone who appreciates craft as a, and I, I feel like I'm someone who definitely appreciates craft and who aspires to be a craftsperson, um, you know, it's been amazing to watch you inside your craft because that's inspiring to me. You know, it, it inspires me to, um, it's like a reminder of the ways which I engage with my own stuff. And so in that sense, it's like, confirmational but it's also inspiring because it's it's just a reminder of like the ways which we can all engage and be present with it is that we're doing whatever it is you know so it's been an honor and and true pleasure to be here with you and and eat your delicious food and um see inside the craft of what you do you know so thank dude you. that's super nice man uh well so i guess like you're one of the first people I think that like, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe like reached out to me because they heard me talking or that, you know, there was something I said or like just words, uh, had some sort of impact on them. And I think it was doing the, the old, uh, bear hunting magazine podcast with Clay Newcomb. And we had done this podcast, uh, talking about in part, this book, hunting and fishing in the new South. And then that kind of, just worked its way into a conversation about race and just, uh, you know, just a differing of perspectives. Uh, you know, I think kind of as an American, but, you know, obviously also in the hunting space. And, uh, yeah, we, like, started having these, like, IG DM conversations and then got on the phone a couple of times. And just the more and the more and the more I learned about you, dude, like, the just – Oh man, I'm so I'm so into the idea of like a renaissance man and just someone who's had all these different turns and course corrections in their life. So I don't always do this, but your life story is so interesting to me. I'd kind of like to start at the beginning with you, if you don't mind. And uh, like I said, now you live in Vermont, which is very decidedly different than where you grew up. Like a, a lot of people now associate Northwest Arkansas with Bentonville and mountain biking and this kind of... Uh, this little ocean of maybe progressive leaning or like modernity in Arkansas, but you grew up like in the seventies in Northwest Arkansas when it was like real different. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. So, you know, I was, I think that let me back up just a little bit because that, that podcast that you did with, with clay, um, it was like the intersection of two worlds that normally they may be in like, they're both orbiting, but man, those paths never cross. Like the, you know, a hunting podcast that dips into race and race relations and, you know, the ugliness that we on many levels need to face in this country and continue to sort of avert our eyes from, um, these two worlds sort of came together, you know, I'm interested in hunting, I'm interested in more than hunting, I'm interested in, you know, the, the genesis of food, of our relationship with food, how mm -hmm. do we get our food? Um, so, made my way to Clay's podcast, you know, Clay's down the road from, you know, Fayetteville, like basically in West Fork, right? Somewhere in that area. Yeah. So, 
I'll talk about that in a second, and I'll try to get to sort of the meat of the question. But uh, no, hey man, honestly, get to any of these prompts any way you want. Okay, to. so I was listening to the podcast, and I was like, okay, I mean, and I had this was a time I feel like when this happened, it was actually right after um, the murder of George Floyd and sort of there's a lot of unrest as there should be and a lot of like, for lack of a better word, reckoning, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like, like all of us, hopefully I was trying to digest that and trying to come away with something that I could, I don't know, use as some guide, you know? Like help me, help me better understand this, help me do better as, as an individual, right? So I came to that podcast and I was like, Oh my God, like finally, someone speaking, you were speaking in a way that was frank and that was corrective on some levels, you know, I'd hear a question or I'd hear an opinion and then you'd say, okay, well, let me like, let's back up for a second. Let me give some context to this. Let me like open this up for you or provide a perspective, which you, because of who you are, where you are, how you grew up, lots of factors might not be aware of, you know? And so for me, it was like, you're able to pull open the curtains and say, here's a, here's a perspective that is entirely new and fresh, um, which is, I think, where we have to begin if we're going to move in the direction of caring for each other in a better, more compassionate, more empathetic way, right? We need perspective. And so for me, in that podcast in a way that I had not seen at any level across any medium from anyone, it was like a revelation of a level, right? And well, so and real like, quick, man, like based, I think we could have that conversation because, and like not just because of mutual respect, but like I've got, a, I've got like a ton of love for Clay, you yeah. know? And like, yeah. I think that, I mean, he's told me, you know, like, I love you, you're my brother, right? And yeah. I think we interacted in that way. So there was no got none of that gotcha stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, and and I, I mean I think that that was, it was genuine. It was honest. Clay spoke with empathy. You spoke with compassion. You know what I mean? It's like all of that came across, and so for me it was so fresh. And I said, I'm just, I'm at a point in my life and in my, I don't know what I hope is evolution. Um, or I want to be closer to people like that. Like, I want to be closer to people who are speaking, you know, who are real. Um, and I try to, I aspire to do that myself, you know. And so, I think that's why I was like, dude, this is amazing. Like, I need to, I need to get in touch with this guy. I, I don't necessarily want, like, I don't want to push anyone to get on the phone. And like, I, I didn't want to be like pushy and say, help me, you know. Like we, yesterday we were talking a little bit and I was saying like, it's not the job of, of people who have been historically oppressed across multiple systems to fix the problem, right? I don't want you to feel like you have to have a conversation with me as an act of outreach to help me better understand, you know what I mean? Like, but if there's information out there and it's free and I can like listen to a podcast and feel like, I have a little bit more context, a little bit more of an ability to understand like how we got here and maybe help, you know, maybe see a way out, see how I can do better, see how I can talk to my kids in a way that brings perspective also, you know? So anyway, um, I really felt like 
that podcast was great for me. And so then I just started stalking you. I was like, well, what else has this guy said? You know, like, oh, he's writing too. Holy shit, he can write really well. You know, like he speaks, um, he speaks incredibly eloquently. And I think um, it was really, it was so, it was so meaningful to me. And so that's kind of like the genesis of our, like, getting to know each other. So, yeah, I mean, we're friends now. We can see yeah, our friendship, definitely. right? I mean, I consider you a friend. Um, I won't put any pressure on you. No, definitely. I mean, dude, and that's like, I thought with Wade and Rachel and stuff, it was weird because it's like we hadn't met until like a couple days ago, but we had had all these conversations. So it's like, it is weird to feel like you're friends with someone before you actually shake their hand. Yeah. But yeah, I feel like, I felt like we were friends before you got here and now yeah. like definitely so. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, for better or worse, this is where we are and I think that it's, I mean, I, I don't know. I think that it's where we are and let's take advantage of it to the greatest degree possible. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, grew up in uh, Northwest Arkansas. Um, definitely, you know, South has a strong flavor, you know. Mm -hmm. South has a strong flavor. Um, and for me, those flavors are like, you know, Mountain Springs, Limestone Bluffs, Sassafras, mm. um, dirt roads, red dirt, you know, looking for arrowheads. Um, and this is the thing about memory or growing up is that I think that we can kind of pick or choose, you know, you can sort of construct this narrative of place and flavor and visual imagery, right? You can construct that and look back to it. And so I grew up there, had all of those flavors. Also remember, you know, Fayetteville as a town, which by and large was, even though it's probably the most progressive town in Arkansas, um, was segregated. I think anybody who grew up there knows that anybody with brown skin lived in the holler, you know, the holler, yeah, in yeah. quotes, right? Uh, because it was probably subsidized housing and um so that's you know a flavor i remember too um i grew up in a pretty like my parents were sort of you know on the crunchier end of the spectrum on many ways food wise um grew up vegetarian hardly any processed sugar um and spent a lot of time in the outdoors running around you know big family um and then did you live in Fayetteville or you yeah. lived? Oh, okay. We lived in town, but you know, what's funny is that um, every weekend we'd go down to um, one of my mother's close friends. Uh, they had a farm out in the hills and actually in Westport. Um, we'd go out there every weekend and just run wild, you know, like let us loose on whatever it was, two or 300 acres probably. Yeah. Um, so I feel like from an early age, like the connection with the natural environment, super um, important for me. For whatever reason, I don't know. Um, now I use it for probably in ways which are different than when I used it as a kid. You know what I mean? Like our connection with the outdoors does one thing as a kid. And then I think as an adult, I use it as a restorative place mm -hmm. or a place to sort of like unravel um, whatever is bunched, you know. So um, anyway, um, grew up in Northwest Arkansas um, through like you know, some funny series of events. I ended up at Oberlin College Conservatory in Ohio and um, 
got a degree in vocal performance. So I'd, I'd always been singing and taking lessons and, you know, I guess I got somewhat serious about it. Um, uh, I mean, we're talking about like operatic. Yeah, singing, operatic right? stuff, like opera and concert work, right? So funny boy from the hills of, of uh, Arkansas with a decent accent, you know, um, gets to go to one of the best conservatories in the country. Um, yeah, dude, I don't even, I don't think of you as a person with a Southern accent, but I maybe just heard a little bit of yeah, it right there. It's there, you know, um, I've been away for a while, I guess. Sure. And I think also like studying music and especially, uh, an art form that uses your voice and your mouth, you know, mm -hmm. to sort of carve phonemes in multiple languages. You begin, you become a little bit of a chameleon, you know, you can, yeah. um, I don't know. I can pick up languages pretty quickly just because of studying them for for singing you know you've got to study the languages you got to know what you're saying right you can't communicate unless it's more than just phonemes and you know what languages would you be singing in so german french italian spanish russian czech you know portuguese i guess you know like any of the mostly the romance languages but also getting into you know russian lots of great operatic stuff written in Russian, you know, great Russian composers. Um, Can you communicate in any of those languages? Yeah, I do well in, you know, French, Italian, Spanish is okay. My Spanish is more like um, restaurant Spanish a little bit, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? But I can get around, I can do okay. Um, but probably strongest, like French and Italian, because I had to study them, and then I spent time overseas, you know. Um, so... Sang, 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 um, got out of conservatory and, um, you know, sang for about a decade, um, doing, you know, standard stuff, young artist program stuff, um, and loved it. Um, but, and I write about this, um, and I've talked about this, I guess I won't say write about it because I'll talk about the book at some point, but, um, I talk about this some, it's like, the cool thing about opera is that you're, it's an exploration of other cultures and other sort of, um, you learn about a lot about other cultures and their ways of speaking, their ways of acting and all of these things, you know, but it's like, it's not an exploration of necessarily who you are or where you came from, right? So it's like all this time spent visiting other cultures, it leaves you homeless in a way. That was the analogy that I always came back to is like. I unhoused myself through the pursuit of other cultures and their language and a pursuit of like trying to really speak as, as or sing as best as I could with no accent because it's discrediting to sing, you know, in Italian with a poor accent. You've got to sound like an Italian with all the idioms and everything else. Um, but all that time spent in other cultures leaves you unhoused in a way. It's not it's like it's not a connection to who you are, or your roots in a way. And so there came this point where I was sort of disenchanted and also we were living in New York City at that point after having like lived and worked on the West Coast for a long time. Um, we moved to New York City because if you're a professional singer doing classical work, you have to be there. It's where all the hiring is done, basically. So we moved to New York City. And, and singing is like where you met your wife. And Yeah, exactly. We met in conservatory. Um, she's a fantastic singer and fantastic artist. And so... We were living in New York City. She's singing. I'm singing. But we wanted a family. Um, and and also, you know, and I've, I've written about this, but 9-11 um, happened. 
And that was like really transformative for me, for a lot of people, right? Um, especially if you're in New York City. And the thing was that 9-11 was a big measuring stick because it was like in your face, this is what tremendous loss of life in a very you know, real way looks like. It was like a measuring stick that you could hold up that was held up to everybody, I think, at a level across the country because we realized... Yeah, we, we weren't... We had... We weren't used to that the way people in other places are used to that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so it was like a bit of a measuring stick. Are, are you, being the person that you are today, happy, happy with that? Because life is... Man, it's so short, you know? This, we are here for such a blink, for less than a blink, you know? So for me, it was like, um, it was a flashing sign, like, that I needed to, I needed to be in a better place as a person. I need to be doing something that I was more connected to. And um, so it took me a while to sort of change gears because I had been singing, but when we moved to New York City, I needed to, I needed to make money, right? I needed health insurance. Um, we wanted to start a family, so somebody's got to make some money here. And so I fell into doing some work at one of the big investment banks and kind of like found that I had a knack for doing this special kind of work um, on the operations side and um, worked to work and started to make good money. Um, but realized along the way that I was sort of, uh, you know, I wasn't happy. I was in this super disconnected place. Um, Living in New York City for as great as it was on many levels was like I wasn't connected to myself, my roots. I wasn't connected to craft in any way. Um, I wasn't doing anything with my hands other than freaking typing and moving a mouse around. And so I, it was a sort of wake-up call, 9-11, like change. Um, and so I was looking for a point of connection. And um, I didn't really know like what that would be. I, I went to New York Art Students League for a while and I studied um, drawing. I thought, this is something that seems really good, uses my hands, I'm gonna study like um, fine art drawing, like figure drawing and stuff like that. I tried that for a while and I quickly realized like, nah, I'm, I'm doing some of the same BS that I did when I was a singer, like hyper-focused on like the minutia of it and I was getting all bound up and, and it, I'll, I'll, like suffice it to say, like I tried that path, it didn't work. And by that time we started having, we had our first child and I just started baking. Um, I was, actually I was traveling to sing um, a fundraiser um, on the West Coast and I stayed with a family out there. My wife and I stayed with a family out there and the guy who um, we were staying with was making bagels like I, I came out and I, he was like, I made these bagels. And I was like... Just at his house? Yeah, he's making them at his house, which... And I was like... That, that's more... That's, that's a different level than like sourdough. I mean, it is. You know, it's both harder and easier at the same time, you know? Um, but... So I, I looked at that and I was like... Wow. That's... Uh, you know, in an afternoon, you can make something. Like that was... Uh, 
it reminded me of something and it reminded me of the fact that every weekend, like I had this connection. It was like the field had been tilled, you know, the ground was ready. All I had to see was the seed and this guy like showed me the seed and I was like, oh, I've been sitting over here with tilled ground that's ready to go because I grew up with my parents making all the bread we ate. I grew up with my mother's pot, with my grandmother's pies. I grew up with my mother's biscuits. It's like I was this fertile field and all someone had to do was show me that seed and say this and that this was a bagel and I was like, holy shit. And it like grew in me like that hunger. And he was like, yeah, here's this book that I like. And I was like, maybe he even gave it to me. No, I think I went home and purchased it immediately though. And I like devoured it and I started baking. And then I devoured another thing, you know, and I just, these books kept coming and coming in. Like you've, you've been a musician. So you understand like having that daily connection with a thing. And I think as a, as a classical musician, it's like you have to do the music every day. Like you practice every day and you're like committed about it and passionate about it. Right. And so when I started baking, it was like, oh, you, you just do this every day. Like I was, I knew how to work. Right. And so I just started doing it every day and um, just baking like crazy and getting more and more serious. And, you know, and I melted the sidewalls of the cabinets in our little apartment, you know, because next to the oven, because I'd run the oven so hot for so long. And I was like taking the subway to Home Depot to get quarry tiles to put down to try and make a better baking service. So mm -hmm. it's like I have a, I don't know, I guess I have a, I have a tendency to kind of jump in with both feet um, in a way and, and coming out of that experience with classical music. It's like not only am I going to jump into this passionately, but I'm also going to like... I'm going to move at a rate which maybe a normal person might not, you know. I'm going to get good at this because uh, it's enjoyable. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a loop that's rewarding. And so that's kind of the, real quick, man, that's kind of the benefit of finding a passion when you're an adult is that mm -hmm. you have the option of just like allowing it to envelop you. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it can, you can, you can reach a level of proficiency kind of quickly. You just with, just with want to. Yeah, definitely. Passion. You know, I, I joke sometimes like, this is kind of corny, but it's like with passion for fuel, right? With passion for fuel, it's like the sky is not the limit. It's just like, who knows where you can go, you know, if you're passionate about it. And, you know, it doesn't have to be baking. I mean... I think that people can find all kinds of things to connect with. You know, you can be passionate about anything. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of people who are passionate about duck hunting, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so passion, a little bit of work. Um, and I started thinking about it, and I was like, man, maybe this is something that I'm into enough that it'll get me out of New York City. And so my wife and I started joking, like, this is going to be our escape pod. Let's open a bakery, like, outside of New York City someplace. But I was like smart enough to know that it's not that would have been unwise without any professional experience because it's like you're learning with all the savings that you, that you have and as opposed to going someplace and learning systems from a working professional model that's a much you know quicker route to sort of success i think mm -hmm. and so um i started taking classes up at king arthur i'd like drive up there and then 
take classes for a couple of days and then try and make it home, you know, in time for bath time. You know how that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I applied to King Arthur three times and, and finally um, they let me come and I basically, you know, made another career change um, because at that point I was working the bank and I had a ton of employees and, you know, was very much on the path to be this sort of sallow person who worked under fluorescence for a lot of hours in a week, who made a lot of money, but um, takes a lot of money to live in New York City. It takes a lot of, I think, spirit. It takes a lot of one's spirit to be there and to be working in an environment which is not a good fit. I think it fits really well for some people, but not for me. So I ended up in, in uh, I ended up in Vermont, and you know, sort of changed my life, changed my wife's life. Um, by that point, we had two kids, and um, I found my way to baking, which I love. Um, but I think I could, I could be doing something else too. You know, it's like because it's it's feeding me at a level which is unseen. You know. Baking feeds me, uh, it feeds a part of me which needs to be doing something with my hands. And mm-hmm. I guess that's, maybe that's why I'm here talking is because baking is my handcraft, right? Baking is the handcraft which is required for my sort of soul craft, right? What I need to get down the road. Baking is that thing for me. I could be um, turning knife handles on a lathe from wood that I pulled out of your yard and I would have probably almost as much connection to that as I would bake it. I would probably have as much connection to designing and building furniture as I do baking. I find, I think that the common denominator, what I'm trying to speak to is that there's something deeper that it, that it feeds in me, literally. The nice thing about baking is that, you know, it's not this protracted time frame. It's not like I'm a winemaker and I have to wait for... There's an immediacy to it. Yeah, I was kind of thinking that with the bagel yeah. because it's like you you imagine and you create and then you like literally internalize it uh, and it can all happen in a matter of hours. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, sometimes I kid like you can, baking is this great thing because you can sort of bake your narrative. You know, if you're a songwriter, you know, you can write lyrics that are expressive of an experience or a time or a place or, mm-hmm. or a hope. Baking can do that too, you know. A lot of the best baking that I've done um, has been the things that are these sort of like sense memories that I've turned into something, you know. Um, yeah, there's some that's interesting because there's some longevity about it. Like, because yeah, those those sense memories, like the smell of something. I mean, it, it'll carry you through the, your whole life, and then you'll get these you'll get these kind of like flashbacks of grandma or like you're talking about like your family baking the bread or it's like people's connection to biscuits and cornbread and baguettes it's it's yeah i was actually about to ask a question like is it you know because with a song or a story that is something that can endure but like we're kind of discovering or not discovering but we're talking about a way that this thing that you know becomes a turd pretty quickly can endure for a lifetime. It's true. I mean, so like fast forward, you know, decent chunk of years, um, 
I work in production, bake, bake, bake. Um, if you're serious about baking and you're an artisan, you know, there are lots of ways to sort of exorcise that, to work that stuff out. Um, I ended up working mine out through like the pursuit of competitions and stuff like that. Not because I'm competitive, but, um, but because, um, the best way to sort of get in shape is to sign your ass up for a race and sign up for a big one. Don't mess around with a 5k. Like Dude, sign I, up for a I just did it, man. Did you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. that's what I did with baking. I said, you know what? Um, I'm going to sign up for something big because I know in the process and I did it with running too and be like, screw it. I'm going to sign up for a 50 mile race. So I signed up for a 50 mile race and then I have to train for it. It's like, you don't want to show up and hurt from the first second. You want to like push that arrival of hurt, which is inevitable back as far as you can. That's why you train, right? It's, it's, it's about comfort. And um, what I like about that model is if you do fall short, like if you fall short of a 50 mile race and you can't go anymore after 45 miles, you just ran a 45 mile race. Yeah. Yeah. Who cares? The race is not about the race. It's about what it takes to get to the starting line. Mm. That's the point. Mm. Right. And so that's what I used. And I started, you know, doing that with bread, you know, cause we have like bread Olympics and stuff like that. Um, and these are like world stage competitions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I started doing that stuff, and that sort of forced my hand in a way um, to do more than just bake what's been baked before. You have to figure out. You have to figure out who you are as a baker, as a person, and I mean it's the it's the same as like you had to figure out who you are as a hunter, right? Mm-hmm. You had to figure out like these are the things which resonate with with me within this culture or this is the style of hunting that I want to do. And I mean, that's a lot of what I've seen and what I hope to see when I came down here was like, how does a person who is as deeply feeling, respectful, ethical, who cares for these animals as much as anybody, how do they engage, right? How do you engage? Cause there's a lot of, there are bad actors out there like there are in everything. Sure. Right? So in that process, in the process of hunting, in the process of like um, figuring out what you want to say through your hands with wheat or whatever your ingredients are, what are you going to say? How are you going to say it? And so that for me was the process of becoming like, of going into competition. And I, it ended up being really good for me. I ended up, um, because of the encouragement of some people around me to like, no, really, like, Lean into who you are and speak your experience through what you make, right? Um, and so I started riding these breads like boxcar, you know? I had a bread called boxcar and it's got like, you know, smoked grain in it. It's got toasted grits. It's got caramelized pecans and molasses because I have a real strong sense memory of going to an auction when I was a kid and playing in this boxcar all afternoon all my parents bid on shit that we couldn't afford or whatever it was. Is it a Pullman loaf? Yeah. So that would be a good idea, right? If you were a long Pullman, I ended up making a fancier shape because if you just make a Pullman at a competition like that, I mean, you can, but it has high decorative value. Also, you have to do things with high decorative value. And so I ended up doing this like curvy sort of S shape, what we call a fondue. So it's got this pretty split in the middle. And, but and there's whiskey in there too. So what I had, the idea that I had was, I'm going to put all the flavors 
that a boxcar traveling across the south would have held. And so I started looking at boxcar routes that go through really the south. Really deep, like roasty notes, like tobacco exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So you're ex you get it exactly because I, I tried adding tobacco. And then I started looking at the health warnings against putting tobacco in food. And then yeah, I was yeah. like, okay, wait, in France, they make this tobacco liqueur. So what if I soak it in tobacco? And then I was like, no, nah, I need to stick with American elements. So I use bourbon. So it's like bourbon soaked toasted barley with grits and molasses and then pecans, you know, because these are all the things that would have sort of traveled this route as I thought of it, you know, as I envisioned it. And so I sort of started baking my narrative and I guess that's where I am today is still trying to figure out um, how to connect with my experience and all of that um, with my hands, you know, through baking. And, and I mean, uh, the last thing I'll say, and then I'll shut up, it's way too long-winded, but um, the last thing I'll say is that when we shut down, I, I think my my role or connection to people changed pretty significantly because I was also in a transition out of being in daily production um, with work, meaning I'm in the bakery every day, um, to a position where I was doing like consulting and still working for the company, but helping like big bakeries solve problems or even small bakeries too. Um, small, you know, solve issues, figure out how to do things, um, basically doing technical consulting. And then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden, and it's literally like pandemic, right? I have, the, I keep thinking it's like kind of a little bit of black humor, but it's like pond like bread, right? Yeah, yeah. Because everybody started baking and we didn't have yeast or flour. But I transitioned into this space where I'm much more like, um, I spent a lot more talking time talking to home bakers and that works well because in 2017, I, I published a book with HarperCollins called Breaking Bread and it's like a baker's journey home and 75 recipes and it speaks to like my path out of Arkansas and then the difficulties of a career change and a life that's sort of like disconnected and then heading back to a point of connection through the food that I make and the family that I have. And you know, really beautiful book, man. Like this narrative cookbook that's really incredibly inspiring, man. Thank you, man. Um, I think we all have those books in us, you know, I really, like, I truly believe that. Like I just, <laughs> I try and tell some stories which help people to laugh at me, which is important. Um, you know, I got that book contract without really knowing what I was going to write about. I didn't mm -hmm. know anything. I, I had had some, I had meetings with publishers. I had an agent. Um, all of it, like through serendipity, not through any like thing that I really felt that I had to offer that was special. In fact, one of the publishers I talked to said, "What do you have to say about bread that's never been said before?" And I, I said, "I didn't say it out loud, but I thought, I don't know. I don't think I have anything like unique to say. I think I'm connected to it in a way which is passionate." Um, but I didn't really know what was unique. You know, you don't always have perspective on your own contribution or lack thereof. Right. So I said, I don't write the book and, um, I, I got a manuscript consultant really quickly. Um, someone who I knew who's really smart and written a lot of books. Um, and she said, just start writing some essays. So I sat down and started writing some essays or trying to, I didn't know what I wanted to say. I didn't know what the arc of the book was going to be. And I'd already, like, I was in the process. I had a contract and everything from a big publisher. Um, 
And, you know, I think I was pretty anxious um, because I had to turn in something. Um, and so I sat down and I was like, oh, I've got a good idea. This is, oh, you know, like within probably like 20 minutes, I was like, oh, shit, here's, the, here's what I'm going to write about. I'm going to write about a person who begins in a place, they leave that place, they go through some refiner's fire, right? They go through some challenge, and then they return to where they came from changed things aren't where they left them they're not the person they were but they have this perspective now and i was like there's there's the book but then i realized like oh yeah okay that that's the same story that's been written since the beginning of time like the, that was the first story and it'll probably be the last story right someone yeah, begins star wars place. man it's star wars it's oedipus it's like i mean yeah. it's like the odyssey it's every it's everything people going through things and then gaining perspective on them so um, so that's where I ended up to, and that's where I am today. And I guess just looking for ways that I can continue to be that person who on a level is inspired and, um, brings p more people closer to, um, their own narrative with whatever it is that they do, you know, their own connection. You're doing it, man. I mean, uh, you know, and like, I hope I've got a book like that in me, you know, like I really want to have that in me and. I'm kind of trying to figure out what that would be. Uh, you do have it in you. Like, it's one of the things that, I, that really struck me from the beginning. I was like, this guy can write. He's got incredible experiences. Start writing. There's your book. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. It's not to get too far into all this, this stuff, but yeah, I feel like this winter has been a... You know, like last year, because of a, a a few different, you know, the word is so overused, but because of the intersection of a few different things, man, like I, I got a bunch of attention that, you know, made me uncomfortable. You know, I I was kind of at a point in my life when I was, hmm, I think I was like hiding a little bit. Not a little bit. I was hiding a lot, and uh, and then suddenly I had this stage, and I had to try and discern, like, do do people see value in me, or do they see value in the exterior of me? Because there was this, there was this race to collect brown people, absolutely, right? absolutely, and and then all the you know the imposter syndromes and all the stuff that goes along with it, and like all these presentations of perceived opportunities or like people telling me what an opportunity something was right and me trying to decipher if i thought they were opportunities or if i thought they were exploitative even if well-meaning and and then you know so i've like then i decided like i'm gonna i'm gonna allow myself or i'm gonna lean into some visibility and but like, how do I want to do that? And what am I trying to say with this? Because I'm not, you know, I'm not really interested or do I think I'd be good at as at being like the black duck guy, you know? I, what It's like with this podcast, like I'm interested in craft and the dirty side of it and the thought-provoking side of it and the 
the same with like writing songs and like I'm interested in like the internal wrestling match, right? And just trying to figure out what I want Black Duck Revival to be because it started as an Airbnb. Like it started as just a place to rent to to people that came here to hunt ducks. And it's it and me have been on this like you know, this path of evolution, figuring out like I don't want to run an Airbnb for duck hunters, you know? I don't want to run an outfitter i don't want to run a guide service you know like i want to have these special things where hunting is a part of it but and hunting is the catalyst maybe and the procurement of food and the involvement and outside is the catalyst and then all these conversations that we've been having all weekend long are that's what i'm really looking for and then me trying to figure out how to disseminate whatever it is i get from that into these other things in my life. Uh, and yeah, I think that I've, I don't think I realized or I knew that. And because I talk about it a lot and because of the way I've lived my life and the jobs I've done, I think people interpret me as like a very physical entity. Right. But I think that if you really boil it down, that my craft or attempt at craft is words you know it was like writing songs it's talking long form it's writing things uh and there's you know i'm probably like the last generation that learned to write in like this kind of tradition this western intellectual tradition kind of way you know like the dewey decimal system and cursive and you know, like I took calligraphy classes from a monk and like just weird stuff, right? And so there is this connection to to hands with that. Like mm-hmm. writing is a is a physical expenditure for me. You know, like I I stand at that bar in Black Duck and I pace and I like slam coffee and I've I've you know, I've got all those romantic notions of like loosening my necktie and then like tick 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 ding. Uh I'm kind of rambling on here, but, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, I'll just go ahead and say it. Like a book is, that is, uh, that's aspirational for me. And I'm, I'm about to transition into it, not being aspirational. And I don't know how that will present, but I, I think I really decided on some long drives, some long drives recently that like, I'm going to do it. And if I do it and, you know, it, maybe I'll, I mean, I've got, I know people that have book deals, you know, like I've talked to book agents and maybe I'll go about it that way. And maybe I'll print a hundred of them and make the covers out of, you know, beaver tail leather or something. Who knows what I'll do with it, but like it will manifest itself in some way. Uh, I think it should because... I think that you, I think what all of what you said is true in terms of like, I think you're someone who has a very close and, and beautiful relationship with words, whether they're coming out of your mouth or your fingers. You know, it's like, I think you're someone who gets it. Um, I grew up, you grew up in church, right? Uh, I grew up going to church, but not 
you know, I, I grew up going to church every Sunday, but not in, I don't think it, I don't think I ever felt like it was a, a guiding force in my life the right. way it is for some people. Right, right, right. My question is related to the fact that I think a lot of the way that I write, so like for me, like the writing process is a process of a sentence comes out of my head, whatever it is, maybe two sentences if I'm lucky, and then I read them. I read it like out loud to myself. It's under my breath, but you know mm -hmm. I'm writing. Like my wife knows I'm writing. If I'm sitting on the couch, I got my headphones on, and I'm like, in the year of blah, 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 blah. You know, I read it back to myself, and I read it back to myself. And I think that's because I grew up immersed in an oral tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and that's why I ask about church is because, and this is something that I, I truly believe is that, and it's one of the great things about the South that I think a lot of other, I don't know, I don't get the sense that it happens everywhere, but I grew up listening to preachers. And my father also is a great extemporaneous speaker, can say things. Um, he's just one of those people, words come out of his mouth in, in an order which makes sense. And Yeah, dude, I'm realizing, man, like, my old man was a storyteller. See? And you yeah. mentioned that earlier this week, and I was like, because when I meet someone who, who can speak like you do in a way where if we were if I were interviewing you for something, I wouldn't be picking over your sentences. They just come out and I would just lay them in untouched because I, I'm not going to improve upon them. They don't need anything for clarity or for resonance. Um, so I, I recognize that in you. And, I, and I, when you said earlier this week, uh, over the weekend, you were like, uh, my father's a great story child. I was like, well, there you go. Like that. Okay, that, that's the puzzle piece that I knew was there. You just put it into the puzzle for me. And I was like, okay, now I get this because I believe the same thing about myself. Um, I grew up, you know, my grandfather grew up in Vicksburg, um, born in the 1890s um, and told us stories on his lap, you know. Um, so I grew up listening to that. I grew up listening to preachers. I feel like I really, um, that's how I learned to write. People say, oh, did you take like writing classes? I've had two writing classes in my life. Um, and the book's done really well in terms of um, people saying, hey, you can write, you know. And I can credit, I could only credit like two things for that. One, the words that I heard coming into my ears mm -hmm. as, a, as a young person in the South and listening to accents and the way which I think Southerners speak. And then... Words came in also through, you know, the books that we've read and um, authors that resonate in that way. You yeah, know? totally. Like, um, and you're talking about, uh, you're talking about like storytelling that has weight to it. Yeah, yeah. And I, my guess is that, I mean, the stories that I was listening to that my grandfather were telling, you know, who knows what. I mean, I remember, for better or worse, I remember Burr Rabbit, you know. Yeah. Um, and some of those. Kind that's of it, man. That's interesting. That's a, that was probably like, a, I don't want to say formative story in my life, but definitely like an influential one. Big time. Don't tell me in that broad patch. Yeah. Um, so all that's to say that I think that when you sit down to write, um, I, all I would say is like, don't overthink it too much, you know? Because 
I feel like we have, I like this idea of like mortal mind, right? Mortal mind is like what we think we know and how we think we can guide things and how we, and I'm not saying that like there's mortal and then there's like divine mind. I'm just saying like, I think with, within all of us, there's a lot of divinity. However you want to like, to whatever you want to ascribe that, right? However, whatever the credits are that roll after we say that, something like that. I believe that within it, within us, we have this sort of divinity, but we also have a lot of like mortal mind. This is the thing that's like, where we think we know what we're doing, but in actuality, like that beauty that's within us can come out in ways which we can't see in advance. We can't like possibly, it's chaos in a way, right? The analogy that I would use is maybe like working with a wood-fired oven or working over uh, in, a, in a situation where you're using wood heat versus using an oven. What's mm-hmm. the oven need to be set? I don't know, 225. Uh, you know, we're going to go low and real slow or 250, whatever it is. Working outside, wood heat, there's chaos. But with chaos comes all of this potential too, right? All of these things that you can't control because... With your mortal mind, you're saying, what should the story be? What's the book going to be that I'm going to write? And what's the crux of this book? And what's the audience? And what problem will this book solve? Those are all questions that like that mortal mind is trying to ask. But I believe that within you is this like pure, beautiful chaos. And what you need to do is sit down and start freaking typing. And don't worry about like where it's going to go, who it's going to please, what market yeah, it is. Yeah. You know what I'm you saying? Did you did your... Yeah, man, the, because I, I feel that too, man. Like, I think there's, you're hitting on heavy stuff for me, man. Like, you know, like the inherent divinity in human, just being a human being, right? And like, I'm real big on that the worst thing you can do to a person is limit their potential, you know? Like, and I just was thinking this when you were talking that like, that's what I think for me. That's where the divinity is, is the potential because potential is limitless, mm-hmm. you know, right? Yeah. And like, that's really what we're talking about when we talk about the divine, it's limitlessness. It's, it's not even like omnipotency. It's just limitlessness. Like it was before there was just before and there is after, and there is all the things in between and it's limitless. Uh, yeah, man, that's ooh boy, that's heavy stuff. You need dude. to breathe for a minute, right? <laughs> yeah, man, it's no. uh, oh yeah, that's 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 excellent. Uh, allow me to diverge if I yeah, can. Yeah, please, please. Because let's talk yeah, about something that stuff needs to second. soak for a while. Yeah. Um, we could talk and, about my shitty shooting. <laughs> no, 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 no. We because then we might have to talk about mine. Uh, let, let's talk about that that roadshow project you had that you said yeah. didn't quite materialize the way you thought, but it's, uh, it's super, it's super interesting to me. And it's, uh, like, I'll tell you what I was thinking yesterday when you were like describing it and you like showed the picture and it's like you and these old timey clothes on an old timey bicycle with a banjo and a wicker basket and all this stuff. It would be, I was just struck with like how perfect you are for it because it would be hokey to me if it was somebody else, not anybody else necessarily, but a lot of other people. But it, it felt 
so appropriate and it uh and it just the chutzpah that it took you know like because i whatever all this talking and emotion and vulnerability i'm still a person that appreciates grit you know and like that took that took balls man you know like to use a colloquialism so yeah describe that if you would man well um yeah it scared the hell out of me um you know and I, I'm a good person to do it on a lot of levels, some of which are problematic, right? You know, like, could you ride up to House on the Pig Trail on a bicycle and knock on the door? What's going to happen? You know what I mean? Let's, like, acknowledge the fact that... Yeah, I mean, there's, you def, you've definitely got the potential for access that yeah. everyone might not. Yeah, no, and I, I think it's important to, like... Uh, I think it's important to speak to that um, on a level, if nothing else. And I'm, we may, you know, maybe we'll get to some of that. But I had a way in, right? I, I, and I was intentional about a lot of aspects of the process, you know? So it's like I brought my little mortal mind and it's all of its sort of weakness. Well, and look, and to maybe, be fair real quick, because I don't, I don't want to lean it all on that. Like you also have a physical and spiritual connection to that place that like, yeah. I don't have. Yeah. You know, I would only be approaching it even best intention wise in a voyeuristic way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was coming at it from the inside at a level, at a level, at a certain level, I was coming at it from the inside. Right. So it's like, um, somewhere underneath there, there's probably an accent that sounds like these folks a little bit, you know? Sure. Um, but maybe let me like give like just a couple sentences about what the hell we're talking about. Cause nobody. Yeah. 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 So um, I conceived of this project, um, where basically I wanted to, I guess it was just curiosity more than anything. It was just curiosity. I was trying to figure out, um, I had been, I'd been working on the book and the book was kind of like well in process and I knew, okay, it's always nice to have something queuing, you know, you mm-hmm. gotta have a next thing. Um, I mean, when I was singing, it's like, once you get one thing up and running and you've memorized your four hours of music uh, in a foreign language and you go to the blocking and you can sing it mostly, um, all of that stuff, um, you come to a place where it's like, okay, what's next? I got to start learning the next thing. Um, and so I started thinking ahead of the next project and um, it was in 2016 and um, country is very divided. Um, and I was up in my Vermont bubble sort of going, what the hell's going on, you know? Like, um, I just didn't understand. I just didn't understand what was going on with the country, in the country. And so I started trying to figure out ways that I could engage with that or like open that up for myself personally. And I thought, oh, I'm gonna go down to Appalachia and walk around and talk to people. I got a little bit of an accent still. Um, I look like someone, maybe I look a little bit scary, but maybe someone would let me on their front porch. We could talk a little bit. And then I was like, started just looking at maps, you know, where do I go? Maybe I'll go to like Western North Carolina or, you know, Eastern Tennessee, North Georgia, something like that. And then I was like, Hey, dumbass, you know, by the way, you're, you're a Southerner ish, you know, you're from Northwest Arkansas, which is, which is kind of, even though physically distant, it's like definitely Appalachia adjacent. Yeah. 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 They're definitely, I mean, settled by people who came, West from the hills of Tennessee. Physically look yeah, similar. Exactly. Yeah. 
So um, I started thinking, well, what are places of resonance for me? Like, because it needs to be, in order for it to be rich, it has to be in a place of res resonance because the resonance will give it some authenticity, right? Mm -hmm. Not just a place that I want to hang out. Like, if that's the case, then let's go someplace warm and sunny. Um, but what's a place where I have some credential or I have some ability to assimilate um, without fully putting myself in a position where I'm another? Because part of what I'm trying to figure out is why there's so much othering, right? Okay. Why is there so much like those people, right? Yeah. Those folks, like you said yesterday. I don't like those folks, you know? Um, and so it sort of the light bulb went off and I was like, oh shit, well, you got to ride in Arkansas. Well, if you're going to ride in Arkansas, obviously, like the road in Arkansas that I have the most connection with, in a, in a way, um, in terms of a narrative, um, the Pig Trail is a great place to begin a narrative. It's boxed in. It's sort of timeless in a way. Um, it's, a, you know, 52 miles from Bashir's to Ozark. It's a finite space. So it has all of these things that seem to my little, again, more like stupid mortal mind makes sense as far as like putting some bookends on a journey yeah and so i decide okay i'm gonna go ride the pig trail it's like do i ride a pig trail on my like double butted single speed aluminum frame mountain bike with my clipless pedals it's like no you can't roll up to a house like that because that puts you in a category in a way and you need to be more generic than that but before i'd even thought of that i thought why don't i just drive but you can't drive because you can't pull your car into someone's house down a dead end road, you know, 10 miles up some holler without causing stress. Even mm. a guy who looks like me, right? Causing stress. Yeah. Who's here? You know, what do they want? Um, so I immediately was like, ah, I can't do a car. I was like, well, maybe I should walk. How about walking? Everybody wants to like see why, why is that person walking? You know, the problem with a walker is that if you walk up to someone's house, they might have to give you a ride someplace. Yeah. They might feel like, oh, shit, this guy needs something. He need, you know, he wants something. He's going to try and work me. So then I said bicycle. Okay, bicycle. That might work, you know. They don't want to put a bike in their car. Maybe they got a truck and they can throw it in the back and take me back to whatever it is, turns been. So I decided on bicycle. But then I decide it can't be like a fancy bike, which... In a way, it's there's all this code switching that we do with how we dress, sure. and what we ride, how we get around, and all this shit. So I said, um, maybe it's just a shitty old bike, and I wear overalls and boots, old hat, you know, like try and take myself out of this time in some way. And maybe it's a little bit of artifice, but I felt like by sort of doing that, it would in a way, at least if it were othering, it wouldn't be of this time period. So it wasn't like I showed up with a... <clears throat> Kansas City Chiefs, you know, jersey on, and everybody here's a Cowboys fan or whatever, and they're immediately like, oh, look at this jerk, you know? So I was trying to just take myself out of a, this time and place um, by the sort of, you know, by my habit, by um, the ingredients that I brought, uh, my mode of transport. And so I didn't really have much of an idea other than I was just going to right up to houses and knock on the door and say, hey, my name's Martin, and um, I'm riding around collecting stories and making biscuits for people. Um, you like biscuits? You know? Like, yeah. Ask yeah. them a question they can't say no to. Um, so it, it, was, it was good. Uh, you know, it was hard. It was stressful. It didn't work. It worked. It failed. It succeeded. I wrote essays about it. I felt connected. I cried. 
Um, I met people who I'll never forget. Um, and so then I, I came back and, you know, I did a bunch of writing and sort of tried to translate the experience um, to myself for others. Um, and then, you know, had the idea that I would grow the project. And I went down there because my publisher had said, yeah, we think this has legs. I came back and sort of how, I think probably, you know, in some ways because of my own weakness, it, it didn't, it didn't sell. Um, but that's okay, you know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, and I think this applies to you too, sometimes we're making investments in things, experiences that don't have an immediate like ROI or connection to an end product mm -hmm. until, you know, we realize later, ah, I kind of needed to do that writing because I got a lot better as a writer or it opened my eyes to something that, that enriched my experience and maybe even that of those around me on a level. Um, so I did, so I did it and now I guess I'm looking for ways which I can like leverage aspects of that experience into some other project, which has more sort of honestly, you know, it needs to be commercially viable. It has to be something that people want to read and enough people want to read that a publisher will put money into it because books are incredibly expensive, you know? Yeah. They, I mean, they've got to have that ROI, that return on investment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, which is not, which is not inherently a bad thing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just make, a thing. Have, I mean, yeah. Accept it or don't, you know, if you don't like it, self-publish, you know, um, what's your audience going to be if you self-publish? Maybe that's okay. You know, and I'm, I'm okay with that, but I feel like at this point in my life, in my, you know, early, very early fifties, I feel like what is your mission? What is my mission? And is what you are doing mission driven or is it driven so that, um, you know, you can retire comfortably or whatever. And I mean, ultimately to me, I don't want to do anything that's mission driven. I, I mean, I feel like I've, I've changed my life and directions a few times and each time it was because I felt passionately drawn to something different. And that's kind of where I am now. And I guess, you know, part of that, and I'll shut up in a second, part of that is because I'm in a position of privilege. Let's acknowledge that, right? I have the privilege of being in a position where, um, I'm not wealthy by any stretch, um, but my means are covered you mm -hmm. know, and that, and, um, and because of who I am and what I look like and some of those things, I think I have opportunities or I don't see limits to the opportunities that I have. I don't shut things down before they begin necessarily because I have this belief for good and bad reasons that maybe it'll work, you know? Yeah, man. You know, as a callback, man, you've got like a belief in your own divinity, right? That yeah. there's limitless potential, which is, dude, I mean, yeah, like what a, I don't know what you'd call it, man. Like what but, a blessing to have that. I mean, because, yeah, then you can explore it. Yeah, but does that sound like uppity? I don't know. If I hear that back, it's like, oh, Jesus, no, what it, is this? Man, it you doesn't, know? dude. And and like uh no it it doesn't at all man it i just i just think it's rad you know like if we all had just that base belief in ourselves cuz that you know like you're talking about you have privilege man like everyone's got some sort of privilege right like maybe the height of your privilege is that 
you've got a job and like a, probably a place at King Arthur for as long as you wanted. And like, like you said, your, your bases are covered. Your means are covered, you know? Uh, and that's everybody's goal. You know, that's like what Wade was talking about with his parents and that like immigrant mentality of like grinding. Like they just wanted to have their bases covered and they wanted their kids to have their bases covered. Uh, you know, that's, you know, you, you, you hear about people in the transition from like a hunter gatherer lifestyle to bread, right? To grain, to mm -hmm. bread. Yeah. And like, what did that, that allows people, which you might, you might call leisure time, but like, that's where art comes from. Yeah. Well, you know, we know that weed is what got people out of caves. Yeah. You know, because grain storage, more broadly grain storage, right? Grain, the ability to, um, to gather grain in the beginning, people were just foraging grain. They weren't, you know, before, ag before the development of agriculture, people were foraging, right? There's archaeological evidence, you know, in Jordan from 14,000 years ago that shows people were baking. And it turns out they were actually baking with foraged grains, right? So they're using foraged grain and they're making things. And because of that storage, we were able to, you know, sit around the fire and, um, and eventually get out of caves, you know. And from that, from that came community, mm -hmm. right? Communities began to form. People began handing food to people they'd never met. You know, these sort of things begin to happen. But to go back for just a second, I feel like for me, and I think for all of us, like hope, you know, hope is, hope is hard sometimes, you know, and I, I don't know why maybe <laughs> I'm just thinking of, wasn't Obama's, didn't he write a book and wasn't it called like the audacity of hope? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I like, I don't mean to like move things into like into a political realm, but I mean, that's a pretty brilliant title. And I think that speaks that to me, like sort of like summarizes, I think what I'm, maybe what I'm trying to say or what, you know, what we're talking about a little bit is that it, to have hope for yourself can be an audacious act at points, right? To have hope like in the fact that what I might say might resonate with someone else, you know? What you build here in Brinkley and Little Rock um, with the words that you say, with the craft that you um, sort of deploy at all these different touch points in your life, whether it's a podcast or whether it's taking people hunting or whether it's showing them how to break down a whole animal or whether it's um, you know, pulling catfish out of the bayou and feeding people with it. That's all craft, you know? And to me, there's like this slight, there's this piece of hope in there, um, which is fueled by passion, right? It's fueled by the love of what you do and the love of, um, that you have for others, you know, food, um, and all of its touch points, I feel like is, is like really at its base, it's an act of love, right? Um, and this sort of like ultimate point of like self-love is hope, you know, it's hope and it's fucking audacious at times. Yeah. And, and hard and messy. And that's where all the best stuff comes from. Yeah. You know, uh, man, I had all these other things I was going to ask you. I had a podcast like this, I guess at this point it'd be a couple episodes ago where I had all these ideas of where I wanted it to go to. And, I just want to leave it on a high note 
you know, like it just, it just makes me think like, we'll just have to do another podcast at some other date. Cause there's lots of things to talk about. Uh, and yeah, dude, I so appreciate you, man. I'm so glad you came down here. I'm so glad you sent me a message a couple of years ago. I'm so glad we're buddies now, friends, whatever. Uh, and yeah, Martin Phillip, what is the best way for folks to follow you and your yeah, work and your craft? Good question. Um, I mean, I guess that it seems like in Instagram is kind of the clearinghouse for everything at this point, sure. right? Because it doesn't have some of the, the drama. Yeah, right. yeah. Right. I mean, I think it still has its own, you know, drama of the sort, but at least it's, uh, I don't know. doesn't have as many old people yelling. <laughs> you said it. Um, yeah, so Instagram. Um, and it's just at breadwright, which is like wheelwright, playwright, cartwright. It's bread, and then W-R-I-G-H-T. You can find me there, message me, whatever. Um, you know, Jonathan, I, I guess I feel like I want to say just another thank you to you for like bringing me down here and like opening this place to me and um and really more importantly just opening your heart in a way that um i think inspires me and also like uh, it just turns the light on you know it really like who you are how you go about things uh it turns the light on for me and i know it turns the light on for a lot of other people so i would say uh, you know, when hope is weak, be strong, you know, because you got a lot, uh, there are a lot of us who benefit from that hope that you have and that you cultivate and that you maintain because, um, it inspires others. And I think everybody's got to reach up and flick the light on these days as best we can, because it's hard, you know, mid pandemic transitioning to an endemic situation. We've got, uh, lots of challenges, um, but we need hope. And so I would say thank you to you for being a source of hope. Oh, dude, that's a, that's one of the nicest things anyone's ever said. Well, Martin Phillip, thank you so much. And thanks for listening. See you next time. Hey folks. Um, at the end of this conversation, I asked Martin if he would be kind enough to read something that he had written uh, the evening before, kind of at the end of the hunt uh, activities for the weekend after we had finished our last dinner. Uh, Martin asked us if he could uh, if he could read just an essay that he had written, and we all kind of sat at the table and were quiet. And Martin read for about ten minutes. And it was a really special experience. And it struck me that as adults, as grownups, we don't ever have people read stories to us anymore. And that was something that was so formative in my youth. uh, And I think kind of foundational to who I am now that I wanted to offer that to the listeners of this podcast. So I asked Martin if he would read something and he was generous enough to do so. So I invite you to hang out for a few more minutes and listen to Martin Phillip read from the opening of his book, Breaking Bread, A Baker's Journey Home. Enjoy. My name is Martin Rainey Phillip, Martin from Martin Chamberlain of Shortsville, New York, a cooper who made barrels and drained them with equal skill, dead of cirrhosis, 1919. Rainey, 
for Thomas Rainey, who left countless Scotch-Irish Rainies in the gray skies of County Armagh, Northern Ireland, for work as a bleachery foreman in the toxic woolen mills of Central Falls, Rhode Island, dead of influenza, 1944, and Philip from George Rennie Philip of Aberdeenshire, Scotland, a journeyman stonecutter who traded Scottish granite for Vermont granite and worked himself to death in Barry, Vermont, dead of exhaustion, 1915. To gain a name is an easy thing, a mouth-long chain of consonants and vowels cut and stamped. With a sharp pen stroke, one can carve on a family tree for eternity. Census documents hold forests of these trees and branches, and you can climb around in them, moving past a spot of ink here, a correction there, the antique curling scripts counting lives and livelihoods as they wind through centuries of occupations and births. There once was a time when lives were linked to tangible trades and physical connections, the crush of a hammer between arm and stone, palms on spinning bobbins of cotton warp, fingers dragging across fresh sawn staves in a cooperage, a baker's arms bent at the dough trough, pulling and kneading. Once we lived at the intersection of our hands and our materials. And if men's names make paternal ladders with lineage and crests and junior and senior, what of the women? Frances Harriet Chamberlain, occupation blank. Carolyn Rainey Harris, occupation blank. Cora Isabel King, occupation blank. While men passed down names in direct lines, matriarchs lived in round forms, moving from knitting circles to mixing bowls, a wrap of arms around a child. Through these connected, embracing forms, they've sewn, baked, tended, and grown those parts of us which shape rather than name. My grandmother, Carolyn Harris, or Oma, as we called her, was a quilter. Her quilting frame, her foundation, hand cut and smoothed by years of use, was constructed by her long-deceased son. In cold months, the frame was assembled in the living room, equidistant from bed and board where she worked, her face bent close to the frame. This quiet play of hands and material, whether in a bowl of flour, a bucket of bulbs, or quietly pulling a needle and thread at the dimming of day, was her connection, her evensong of fingers and heart. Her handcraft was the outward representation of her soulcraft. Oma passed this connection to my mother, Frances Philip, through will or environment, and what emerged in Mama was an entirely alternate form. Where Oma was precise and traditional and classical, my mother blew everything to the moon, scattering scrap quilts cut from colorful bikinis along the way. If Oma was control and adherence, delicate angel food cake for every birthday, Mama was hollering Chinese fire drill at a stoplight with a car full of kids. I'm thankful for the contrast, for Mama's ability to improvise, to roll with it, to encourage a baking adventure to never, never land, even in the face of an empty pantry. And I miss Oma, the precision, the formality, the pecan pie with a splash of whiskey, blonde brownies spiked with black walnuts, orange glazed angel food cake adorned with fresh flowers, treats held in soul's memory. These two distinct lines, the men 
handing names and a connection to trade, and the women, living through example, nurturing with linens, layettes, and food, made their way to my lap as I, attempting to cross-stitch, sewed my pants to a cloth napkin as I sat on the couch next to my mother. Heritage is stamped, willingly or not, within and without. There are jewels and there are scars. On my arm, the faded white of two holes where I was impaled running in a thicket, the sticks entering my arm and later yanked out under running water by my brother. Despite decades of fresh skin and new memories, the scars still look back at me, bearing a witness to a time and place where stick punctured arm. So it is with craft and lineage, hearts and names. Today I reach down through grass and dirt to grasp the roots of this lineage. My wife and I left New York City to bring our family back to Vermont where the first Phillips settled when they came from Scotland. We live at the confluence of rivers and rusty train tracks in a railroad town. It's here that I give daily embrace to handcraft, trade, and round forms, milling flour on circular stones, mixing dough, and baking bread for my family and communities of happy eaters which encircle us. If today is my day to be counted, to climb and take a place on the family tree, to lay down my roots or make the last journey, it is a good day as I'm proud of my listing. I'm in the right line in the right place to receive and also give. I'm a baker and flourishing. I grew up in the creases of the Ozark Mountains, learning to speak with soft mouth and even tones to the night calls of Whippoorwill and Chuckwill's widow. The third of six children, we were a mixture of old ways and hippie new ways. We had foxfire books on the shelf, comfrey in the garden and cures which favored hair tying for deep scalp wounds, garlic pills for blood clots, and cider vinegar for everything else. Our diet had no meat, preservatives, food coloring, additives, white sugar, or anything else multisyllabic on a label. When we could afford it, my mother'd place a bulk order with the food co-op for tubs of tofu, 50-pound bags of rolled oats and pinto beans, buckets of blackstrap molasses, and bags of brewer's yeast. Those days were not gentle imprints or glancing marks from casual use. They were dents and patina, weathered paint on hardwood boards, and their impressions remain forty years on. I see steam vents rising from oatmeal in a house with frost on inside windows, cornmeal-crusted sunfish fried in cast iron, twisted inside out, tails pulled through mouths, and my mother's ragged drop biscuits flecked with whole wheat flour. They were not lofty or light. They weren't brushed with butter or made with lard. They were simple. They were cheap and they were dinner, flour in the bowl, baking powder, enough to cover the small dip between her palm's heart and lifelines, and a thimble of salt. In my mind's eye, she's near the stove, framed by a greasy fox pelt and cast iron corn poke pans hanging on a brick chimney. She hand-mixed the dry ingredients, then made a well, filled it with water, and floated enough oil on top to cover the liquid surface. Stir, stir, scoop. Drop bacon serve with honey or brewer's yeast gravy. Biscuits for dinner. Folk medicine made with the eye's measurement. We all have these memories, recollections which when summoned can transport us. Food traditions have a way of leaving marks. 
indelible ink the whiff of which yanks us whirling and swirling to lands beyond and long gone. But could I recreate these biscuits with my own palms? Would I, in some way, in some attempt to go back, use these warm forms as a means of travel to an old house in Arkansas? What is it about biscuits that brings weight beyond the measure of ingredients? Over my years as a baker, I have given innumerable loaves to friends, family, or strangers, and while each loaf carries something and was passed in earnest, I can't say there's a more tender act than the sharing of biscuits. This gift, this simple mix of flour, milk, butter, salt, and leavening, when eaten warm from the oven, contains me, my heritage, my home, my upbringing, all that I am. And they have changed as I have. When I make them today, I fuss some, perhaps as Oma would, gently incorporating layers of cold butter and folding before cutting into small rounds. When no one's looking, I might even make them without measuring anything, as Mama would. During baking, moisture in the butter expands, pushing upward before setting and transitioning, toasting to golden. Small hands can break them, separating tops from bottoms easily, each half fairing butter or jam or simply riding sidecar to a bowl of beans. I don't know what the old home would feel like today, but I do know that my heart is here in this very moment when I have biscuits. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to the Black Duck Revival podcast. As always, uh, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. Catfishing trips are open and being booked right now. If you're interested in uh, coming to Arkansas, hanging out in the bayou with me for a few days, and uh, fishing, bird watching, cooking, having a great time, uh, please go to the website. That's just blackduckrevival.com. And if you'd like to keep up with me and everything Black Duck Revival, the best way to do that is on social media, and that handle is Black Duck Revival. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye.